I'm going to mention four points today from that text, Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. I want to just focus in on four things that I believe might encourage us to have great faith uh, in our journey. And the first is this, to die in faith means that you lived in faith. To die in faith means that you have lived in faith. And you can see that reflected in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. So all those mentioned so far in Hebrews 11, this scripture is saying they died in faith. Now, you might particularly look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and say those are the ones that he's talking about dying in faith. But I think it's the totality of those who have have been laid before us. Now, certainly Abraham is unique. In fact, the scripture is going to bring him back up often as we're just reviewing what faith is and how our lives are made in Christ alive in faith. Uh, Yesterday, I was listening while I was working outside and just listening through uh, Acts and then Romans, and I couldn't help but just think of all the times that Abraham's name is brought up. And every time it's an encouragement for us to have the kind of faith that Abraham had. So he died in faith, which means he has lived in faith. Now to live in Christ is to live in faith. And God desires us to have a great gain in our faith. In fact, the way it's intended by God through the Spirit of God is that the more years we have, the greater faith we have. As you're gaining in years... You are to be gaining in faith, and the culmination of that is our death. There is no greater time for us to demonstrate faith than in the moments, in the season of our death. So the more years that we live, the more faith we possess, and the more faith we reveal. So death is that apex of our faith. Life difficulties are like pop quizzes. They are revealing about our faith. I can remember with some disdain the pop quizzes that would come in school, high school, and then in college. Somebody would say, we're having a pop quiz today, and we're going to find out if you've been doing your reading. I'm going to find out what you know, or in my case, what you don't know. So pop quizzes for us in life are really to identify, how's your faith? And then there are crises in our life that are like midterm exams. And they reveal more in depth how your faith is. But the final exam is death. The final exam is that great culmination of a life that has been lived in faith. And I think what this passage is helping us to discover first If you're going to die in faith, you're going to have to live in faith. And if you're living in faith, you ought to have your death in mind. You say, Randy, that sounds so morbid. Oh, my goodness, not for us. For we just saying that's when the glory really is revealed to us, when we'll be made like Christ because we will see him face to face. What a day of rejoicing that will be. So I have seen... Many times, as I have said many times, I want to live well and I want to die well. God help me to have that kind of faith. So God means for our faith 
to grow in him. And he uses life to develop us, to shape us, to hone us. So in faith, we are becoming more and more like Christ. That's how we can rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our sufferings produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. So I think we ought to be asking of the Lord, what do life's tests reveal about my faith? And as we come to some conclusion about that, Lord, will you tutor me and increase my faith? And as I see that I need to grow in faith, just press towards you that you might give me more faith and help me to develop that faith. So Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were certainly not perfect, but they had enough faith to see the distant view of the kingdom of Christ. That's what this passage is really revealing to us today. We might think it's about a promised land. No, it's about an eternal land. It's not about the land of Israel. You're going to see that in this text. It seems like the older they got, the more clear that vision became of the kingdom of Christ that was coming. And so they were, they were gaining in their faith, gaining a clarity, a vision, a, a real purposefulness about what they were doing here on earth and what God was doing. So God made a promise to them, and they were pretty confident that God was going to fulfill that promise, although they never saw it in their lifetime. For example, God promised to Abraham, to your offspring I will give this land. So he comes into the land of Israel and he says to him, to, to you, your descendants, I will give this land. Now, Abraham didn't see that in his lifetime. His son did not see that in his lifetime. Neither did his grandson see that in his lifetime. In fact, it's going to be 500 years after Jacob's death, nearly 500 years after Jacob's death, that Israel will see the land in their possession. So they didn't actually experience that promise of God, but what we're seeing is that promise is way more than the geography of the Middle East. It's way more than putting your stake down into the dirt. It goes into an eternal promise. It goes into a land that is forever. It goes into a dwelling place with God. It goes to the new heaven and the new earth. So I want you to see this vital truth that the writer of Hebrews is wanting us to grab hold of. Heroes of faith are undeterred by their life experiences. They see beyond the experiences that they're living with. The feelings don't sway them. What others write and say, that doesn't deter them. What worrisome thoughts they may have, that doesn't change them. The moments of discouragement and the seasons of disappointment don't dissuade them from the realities of God. The more they go through that, the more quizzes and midterms they have about faith, the more firm they are on God accomplishing for them. What they're experiencing did not change their vision. In fact, I would say over the years, it sharpened their visions. So although none of the patriarchs saw the fulfillment of the promise of God specifically about the land, they saw the promise of God, a greater promise that was further out in the distance. In other words, they were so confident in God and his word that they saw past their current circumstances into a distant future that they know was going to change all realities. And they saw that. Now, now let that sink in for a moment. Because there's some experiences that you and I have 
that potentially could distract us and dissuade us from the vision that God has called us to have and the faith that God wants us to have solidly in Him and His Word. Don't let those disappointments in this life dissuade you from the ultimate completion that God has already promised you. He is making all things new. He will give you a new life and a new hope and a new future. It's essential that we know the promises of God. And it's equally important that we understand what is not the promise of God. So I think we ought to just slow down as we're reading God's word. And read those promises that God has given to us and mark them, write them down, highlight them, color them, whatever it takes for them to kind of lift off the page to us. Think about them, meditate on them, repeat them, tell them to others. Lift the promises of God in your life, particularly those that are yes in Christ, that are made specifically to his followers. Let those promises be known and let the clarity be so that you can see them. and Trust that God is going to provide them. Did you know God has not failed in any of his promises? What he has said has always come true. It's that way in the past, it's that way in the present, and it will be that way in the future. So know the promises of God and know what God has not promised. Sometimes people have a hope and a want, and they'll somehow manipulatively turn that into a promise from God. And my friends, that can take you completely off course. Know the promises of God that are in His Word. So here's the first Truth that I think is lifted from this text. To die in faith means that you are going to live in faith. You are already living in faith. Secondly, to possess heaven means that you have to dispossess the world. If you're going to possess heaven, you are going to have to dispossess this world. Here's what he says in verse 13. All these died in faith having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now, even though the heroes of faith lived in the promised land, they identified themselves as strangers and exiles. Viewing themselves in this way was not just because they weren't possessing the land in a way that they could build a permanent home. It's not just because they were living in tents, although they were living in tents. They were going to dwell in the land and they would permanently have the land, but that time was not yet to come. They viewed themselves, though, as strangers and exiles or foreigners on the earth, not just in that land, on the earth. In other words, they set their sight and their hope on the kingdom of heaven and everywhere else they went in the midst of this life, they saw it as being an exile. They saw it as being a stranger. It didn't feel right to them. The world didn't settle in them because they didn't settle into the world. They had their sight on heaven. They had their sight on the kingdom of God. They had their sight set on a place that there would be no weeping, no sin, no sorrow, no sickness, no disappointment. They saw themselves, though they were establishing on the earth a temporary dwelling place, they saw themselves as strangers, aliens, foreigners. They were moving through to get to some other place. Now listen, that land that God had promised them is absolutely stunningly beautiful. The land of Israel is amazing. 
I'm talking about from the Golan Heights down to the Sea of Galilee, from the Mount Zion where Jerusalem is all the way over to the Mediterranean coast, back down through the Jordan Valley into the wilderness to the Dead Sea and beyond. I'm telling you, it is absolutely spectacular. Stunning is its beauty. It's a land of abundance too. As God described it to them later, it would be a land flowing with milk and honey. Talking about just the lushness of it, the productivity of it. However, the promised land and the beauty of it, the bounty of it is nothing compared to the majesty and the glory of heaven. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and others knew that. They understood that because God had given them that vision. And so though it was distant for them, they saw that. And that's what faith is. Faith is looking through the realities that are around us to what God has spoken and believing it so fully, so thoroughly that you can see it. And they saw it. And God was encouraging them to continue to have that kind of faith. So we have to understand this significant point. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not place their faith in God, merely trusting that he was going to provide for their lives with a new motherland. Instead, they put their faith in God that he would transform them spiritually, physically, and otherwise, and provide for them an eternal home where they would live with him eternally in heaven. That's where their sight was. Western Christianity seems to make a whole lot out of temporary dwellings and possessions and well-being on earth while ignoring the significance of our eternal home in heaven with God. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't do that. All the land was beautiful, it was lush, it was promised to their descendants, but their vision was not there. It was beyond. It was into an eternal dwelling with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it was just a turning of their attention. They viewed themselves as strangers and exiles because they were moving towards that eternal home. And we should too. We're in the season of Thanksgiving and we're going to have a great Thanksgiving lunch after our life group today. And in the Thanksgiving season, we think about pilgrims. So I want to just bring that thought forward for a moment. You and I are to be pilgrims, spiritual pilgrims. But listen, you can't be a pilgrim without a pilgrimage. And your pilgrimage should be the destination of heaven with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit dwelling there with you and you with them. So you and I are on a journey. We're moving through. We are exiles and strangers because we're on a pilgrimage to our home. And that's where they were as well. If you're a genuine citizen of heaven, you're always going to feel like a stranger and a foreigner in this world. Let me pause there purposefully. If you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you are always going to feel like a stranger and an exile on this earth. Have you gotten comfortable? Comfortable in this world? Comfortable with its entertainment? Comfortable with its music? Comfortable with its reading? Comfortable with its goals and aspirations? Comfortable with its wealth? Oh, don't get comfortable, my friends. 
you and I are strangers. We ought to have a holy discomfort with the things of this world as we see we're moving towards our eternal heavenly home. So I think this passage is helping us to discover we have to renounce the claim to the world if we're going to claim heaven. But unfortunately, many people claim heaven while they continue to conform to this world. And the kingdom of heaven doesn't allow dual citizenship. You have to choose. Dispossess this world in order to possess heaven. And I'm just terrified of the people that claim heavenly citizenship while it's apparent they have established themselves well here on earth. This passage is helping us to see differently. The patriarchs lived as strangers. That means they didn't worship like the people around them. They didn't engage in the pagan culture that surrounded them. They didn't socially get together with the Canaanites who lived in that land. They were radically different. They were strangers and they viewed themselves as strangers. And therefore, God calls us to live our life differently. How differently should you and I live? As different is light to darkness and darkness to light. That's what he says. Live your life totally differently. The difference ought to be evident in what you and I are treasuring. It's evident in what we pursue. It is evident by the words that we speak. For the Bible says we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven and we seek first the kingdom of God and out of the overflow of the heart that is filled by the Holy Spirit, the mouth speaks. We live differently because God has called us to live differently and our faith moves us to do so. So people of great faith are strangers of this world because they have weaned themselves from the worldly ways and the pursuit of the things of the world for their heart is longing for heaven. Their heart is longing for the physical presence of God in their lives. They are exiles because they are traveling on their way home to heaven. So as King David and Israel were possessing the land, David had this prayer to the Lord, and it's one that you and I ought to have as well. He said, I'm a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. So here's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with that mindset. I'm an exile. I'm a stranger. And here's David, who's living in possession of the land, along with all of Israel, who's king of the land of Israel. But yet his prayer to the Lord is, I'm a sojourner. I'm moving through to heaven. Though I'm king of this kingdom, my kingdom citizenship rests with God. That's what he's praying. So this is what people of faith do. This is what you and I are to do. This is how we are to express. Now look at the third aspect that's in your handout. To live entirely means that you've anticipated death expressly. So if you're going to live fully, you've got to have death in the forefront of your mind. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm not talking about the moment of your death. I'm talking about what happens after your death. For people who speak thus make it clear that they were seeking a homeland, verse 14 says, but, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. So many of people attempt to live this life to its fullness, considering that there's not another life eternal that ought to have their attention. 
Christians understand that if we're going to live life fully, we have to anticipate the death that is to come and what happens afterwards. If you want to have the greatest fulfillment in this life, you've got to anticipate the moment this life is over and the moment eternal life is full and you're experiencing it fully. So the faithful people mentioned in Hebrews 11 fully lived because they were seeking a heavenly home. Their quest wasn't in wealth and in prosperity and fame or wellness. Their quest was dwelling with God in heaven. And so they lived well because they had that eternal focus. The Apostle Paul had that same thing, didn't he? To live is Christ. To die, that's gain. He had the right mindset. He had this mindset of faith that I'm going to live the fullness of Christ today knowing that the greatest of that fullness is coming at my death when I'll be like him. I'll see him and I'll be like him. So I'm going to ask you a question. Why do we get wrapped up in a so-called bucket list? Experiencing more and more of this world, why do we live for a bucket list when God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? And why gather in a mess in this world's economy when in Christ God has qualified us to share with the inheritance of the saints in light? You see, we live differently because we have the attitude and the prayer of David who said, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So we will live righteously and honorably the day, uh, day by day before God and others when we know and anticipate the goodness and mercy of God will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So if you're going to live this life well in faith, you're going to have an anticipation for the heaven to come and the dwelling with God to come. Think with me for a moment how this perspective can encourage you and change your life and reveal the hope of the gospel to others. Think about with God in faith that he's provided in this eternal dwelling in his presence. Think about how that would help you manage loss differently. When you know that God is providing everything, when you know that every provision of God is from the heavenly places is going to be yours when you know that you are a saint sharing in the inheritance of God and that Christ Jesus, everything is entrusted to him and he shares it with you. When you think about that and you know that and your faith is in that, tell me that won't change the way you deal with loss. When you think about the eternal life that God is entrusting to you already, you're alive spiritually with him, and one day it's going to be that way physically. When you think about that, tell me that it won't change the way you deal with death. Tell me when God is your great hope and your great friend and your great Savior and Lord and Master. Tell me when you come to conclusion about him that it won't change the way you deal with conflict. It will greatly change the way you deal with conflict. For if God is for you, who can be against you? Tell me that if you have your hope on a future where it's secure with God and all the treasures have been stocked by God on your account, tell me that that won't change the disappointments that come in this world. It will change. 
And so that's the reason why it's essential that we have the vision with faith. That we see past all the calamity and all the disappointments and all the experiences that are so troubling and so heartbreaking to us today. We see past that to a future that God has provided for us and promised to us that is yes in Jesus. So if we want to live well, we're going to focus our life on God in heaven where our citizenship is secure. And then number four, to be a faithful in a faithful relationship with God means that he calls and welcomes us as his own. Look what he says in verse 16. It's one of my favorite verses of this text. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Perhaps verse 16 is the most intriguing of all, isn't it? I want to state... I uh, uh, for perhaps verse 16 is the most intriguing of all, isn't it? Check it out. Thanks, Siri. <laughs> uh, don't think I need that right now. We have the Word of God, not Siri. We're going to hang out there with Him. Perhaps verse 16 is really the highlight. So let me just try to reframe it in today's vernacular. Genuine people of faith give the Lord no reason to be ashamed to be called their God. I hope I wrote that down in the handout for you because I want you to come back to that. That's a big part of this text. Because what he's saying is Abraham and Isaac and Jacob gave God no reason to be ashamed to be their God, to be called their God. It's so vital that you and I remain on track thinking holistically from the Bible about what that means. Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were not super saints. In fact, they were sinful men. If you just review back in the narratives of Scripture about them, you'll see at times they had significant lapses. There were times in their lives that they struggled with lying and outright deceit and disobedience and sexual sin. I could go on about their lives and how they were disappointed themselves and certainly how they didn't live righteously. So you might say that the patriarchs and all people proved to be a hot mess in need of God's great mercy and grace. And if you say that, you'd be on the right track. Yet God sovereignly extended to them mercy and grace and he credited righteousness to them because they had faith that God would supply, that God would transform them, that God would deal with their sin, that God would give them righteousness, that God would bring them who were sinners to be saints into his kingdom. They had faith that God would provide in that way. And because of that, God said, I'm not ashamed to be called their God. Isn't that amazing? 
That's my hope. That's where my faith lies. That's where your hope is and that's where your faith ought to be lying, that Christ will cover you, that Christ will redeem you, that Christ will take your sin and wash it from you, that Christ will give you credit of his righteousness, that he will declare you to be holy and right before God the Father, that he will bring you into his kingdom, like transferring you out of the kingdom of darkness into the glorious kingdom of his light, that God would take you out of the grips of hell and he would put you into the hands of the Savior, God himself who has provided for you in heaven. That's where their faith was. And God said, because their faith is in me, I'm not ashamed to be their God. I'm not ashamed to be known as that. Hebrews 11 honors God by people placing their faith in him. And in return, God honors them. For those who honor God, he so honors. Now listen, it's one thing to boast. Oh, the Lord, he is my God. But it's a whole nother thing for God to say, I am his God. Or I am her God. It's not about what you claim. It's about what God claims. And God claims us as his own when our faith is in Christ to redeem us, to save us, and to change us. I've got to ask, is everybody in this room, those who are watching online, are all of you belonging to God? Does God claim you as his own? Is God giving you his name, written your name in the book of life? Is he, is, is he your God? You say, well, I don't know. How can I be certain that he is my God and that I am his? Well, here's a little list that you might think through. Number one, has there been a time when you have put your faith in him, entering into a covenant relationship with God through the blood of Jesus Christ that has been offered to you, and you received that by faith? Has there ever been a time that you say, yes to God, I receive you by faith? I receive this covenant of salvation that is given to me through the mercy and grace and love extended through Christ on that cross and gloriously demonstrated in the resurrection. Is there a time in your life that you say yes in faith? And is it evident that you have submitted and yielded your spirit to the life of Jesus Christ, to the call of Christ, to the way of Christ, to the righteousness of Christ? Are you submitted to him? Is it evident? And is there a deep-seated desire in you to obey God and His Word? It's one of the evidences of faith when we have a deep longing to obey Him. It doesn't mean that you are perfect in obedience to Him, but you have a longing to obey Him. Where does that longing come from? It comes from God. He places that in us. He gives us a holy unction. And that's part of the evidence of our faith. And do you view yourself as a slave unto the Lord Jesus Christ, a slave unto righteousness? You say, well, I don't really like that term. That's the term that God uses. He is master and Lord, and we are his slave. I am a slave of Christ, and I cherish that. If I'm not a slave of Christ, I'm a slave of this world. I'm a slave to sin. I'm a slave to death. Oh, I want to be a slave of the master Jesus who is benevolent and kind and shares all things that are good with me. 
a slave unto him? Do you love God above all else? Do you seek his kingdom above all else? Is your greatest ambition his glory? Those are the evidences of genuine faith. Those are the evidences of people that are transformed by Christ. So if someone has been made alive to God, it will be by faith. Of such people, God says, I won't be ashamed to be called their God. It's evident. And that kind of understanding that God has provided for us means that we see ourselves differently in this world as strangers and exiles because we are viewing the God of heaven and we want to live there. Can I just remind us, friends, that everything in this life has consequence in the next life? Everything. Let the consequences be good. Let them be rich in faith. Let them be flourishing with blessings that God has given to us. Now, would you join me in prayer? In this moment, Lord, you've spoken with clarity about genuine faith and the expression of that. And perhaps there are some that you have drawn into this message to hear these words proclaimed. And their attention is now on Jesus. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. Their attention is to him who knew no sin, who took our sin upon himself that we might have the righteousness that belongs to you. Our attention is on him who is offering us a covenant with you, brought about by his blood shed for us. Our attention is on him who took our sin and your judgment upon himself on the cross so that we might have freedom from sin and a new life in his spirit. And as he is provoked us with those truths, you are providing faith. Oh God, I pray that people will exercise that, and that this will be the day of their salvation. For a number in this room, Lord, it might be that they've had a moment of recognizing faith and what is required of them, but somewhere along the way they have veered off the journey and they've settled into this world and they have not viewed heaven and they have allowed themselves no longer to view this world as strange to them and they've settled and today you're reminding them of their genuine citizenship and you're calling them to live differently to view differently to think differently and so lord what you call them to i have full Certainty that you will bring about the power needed to live that. Some are wayward and you're calling them home. There are other decisions that you're calling them to make. And God, I pray that they will have faith that you'll bring it about. And I pray with this more crisp view of heaven and you that you'll find us given to walk in it, to carry out and walk out our salvation. We pray this would bring glory and honor to Jesus and the gospel fully presented to others around us. In the holy name of Christ, I pray, amen.